Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and get started with our next topic. Our next topic is enlightenment. What is enlightenment? This is chapter three of volume one, where you learn about what enlightenment is so that that way you can more easily navigate your way to it. If you didn't understand what enlightenment was, you wouldn't actually be able to navigate your way to it. So we're going to spend some time here discussing what enlightenment is, giving you guys an opportunity to ask any and all questions that you like. And remember, those of you guys that are online, you can ask questions as well. So to understand this topic of enlightenment, the first thing I'd like to share with you is that it's a challenge for the unenlightened mind to understand what enlightenment is. As we talk here today, at the end of our discussion, you're going to understand enlightenment much more than you do right now, but just understand that you're not going to understand it a hundred percent after we get done our discussion today. It's kind of like, could you describe chocolate ice cream if you've never tasted chocolate ice cream? You kind of need to be able to taste chocolate ice cream to be able to really fully understand it for yourself and be able to describe it to others. So I'll describe it to you in the best way that I can to be able to help you understand it. But just understand that you won't understand 100% of what it's like until your mind's moving closer and closer to enlightenment and actually being able to experience it more and more. So as we go, as I mentioned, feel free to ask any and all questions. So it's, it's quite challenging for the mind to understand it. As you're experiencing it, you'll understand it more and more as you go. Enlightenment is the ultimate goal of the path to enlightenment. And this is what we're going to be discussing. To understand what enlightenment is, I'll describe it to you here. And then, as I mentioned, feel free to ask any and all questions. What enlightenment is, is it's a mental state that you attain in this life. You can attain this mental state from the human realm and also their heavenly realm. There's five realms of existence that the Buddha taught. We're not going to go into the cycle of rebirth or the realms of existence very much in this particular class because this is a foundational class and I keep you guys focused on the core central teachings that's going to lead to the improvement to the condition of your mind. But as you get going in your journey to enlightenment, you might decide to study the cycle of rebirth at some point. In this book series that I share, it's volume 11 and it's volume 11 for a reason because that's a better time for you to actually start approaching understanding the cycle of rebirth. But even in volume one, there's one particular chapter where I share a little bit about it. But here, as I help you guys understand what enlightenment is, just know that you can attain this mental state in the human realm as you are human now or in this heavenly realm as well. Once an individual attains this enlightened mental state, the mind will be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. The mind will be in that mental state permanently. You'll no longer experience any discontent feelings. So all the anger, sadness, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, 
Boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, even the slightest displeasure is eliminated from the enlightened mind. There's no stress, there's no anxiety, any of those kinds of feelings have been completely eliminated because you've eliminated the causes and conditions that are causing those feelings to arise, namely these pollutions of craving, anger, and ignorance. This is what's causing the mind to experience these discontent feelings. By the time you get to enlightenment, your mind will be concentrated, it'll be steady, it'll be unshakable. There's nothing that you'll experience in life that'll shake up the mind. Like right now, maybe if somebody says something impolite, unkind, unfriendly, disrespectful to you, your mind might get shaken up by that. Maybe if you see that a war has broken out in the world somewhere, your mind might get shaken up by that. If you get a phone call that your mom or your dad or brothers or sisters or other people are in the hospital, you might get shaken up by that. If somebody dies or passes away that are close to you, you might get shaken up by that. If you're in a long-term relationship that ends, you might get shaken up by that. But by the time you get to enlightenment, your mind won't be shaken up by those things. The mind will be steady, calm, unshakable, no matter what's going on in the world. And then as you get to enlightenment, not only is your mind experiencing this peace, calm, serenity, and contentedness with joy permanently, but you'll no longer experience rebirth in the cycle of rebirth. You will escape that continuous cycle of continuous birth over and over and over again. Right now, you might see that certain problems and certain difficulties or struggles that you have in life tend to be repeated over and over and over and over again. And this is just because the mind lacks certain wisdom. As you cultivate wisdom, you can escape that continuous cycle where your mind's continuing to experience the same struggles over and over and over again. And this overall problem of continuous rebirth is resolved and eliminated as well. Because the same thing that's causing the discontent feelings is the same thing that's causing continuous rebirth. And you'll understand that more and more as I share with you the teachings of the Buddha, how by eliminating what's called craving, desire, attachment, that's not only the condition that's causing the discontent feelings, but it's also what's causing rebirth. So by eliminating craving, desire, attachment, you're eliminating the causes and conditions that lead to discontentedness and also the causes and conditions that lead to rebirth. And when I teach this to you tomorrow, you'll be able to independently verify it like I mentioned to you guys. And then as you move into this enlightened mental state, you'll notice that the mind will be calm and relaxed, but yet attentive and alert. Sometimes when you think about calm, relaxed, in the unenlightened state, you just think kind of like maybe like a vegging out kind of thing. But this calm, relaxed mind that is in the enlightened mental state, it's calm and relaxed, but yet there's attentiveness and alertness. There's a focus and a concentration, a clarity of mind and deep memory that doesn't exist in the unenlightened state. By the time you get to the enlightened mental state, your mind is always experiencing that peace and joy, the relaxed, calm state, the attentiveness, the alertness, the focus and clarity in the mind. And that it comes through eradicating the mind of these three unwholesome roots or these three poisons referred to as craving, anger, and ignorance. This gets much deeper when we talk about the 10 fetters, which we're going to be talking about here in a moment. But from a high level, we describe these three poisons or three unwholesome roots or three fires as craving, anger, and ignorance. So by freeing the mind of craving, anger, and ignorance, realizing non-self, which you'll understand what that is as we talk tomorrow, and dissolving the ego, this is what's going to produce the enlightened mental state. Those qualities of enlightenment will shine through because you're lifting the pollutions out of the mind. You're eradicating them out of the mind. So now the mind can perform more optimally.
You'll be practicing generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. These are the antidotes or the solutions or the remedies to craving anger and ignorance. You'll understand this more on Wednesday, that craving anger and ignorance are the unwholesome roots, but the exact opposites of those are generosity, loving kindness, and wisdom. And I'm going to help you to understand that on Wednesday. The path to enlightenment is a purification of the mind through training the mind and eliminating the conditions that are causing the mind to be in the unenlightened state. So you're purifying the mind of certain pollutants, or some people refer to them as defilements or taints. We refer to them as the fetters. What a fetter is, is like a shackle around your ankle with a chain and a ball. This is what they use to keep prisoners trapped in a particular area. Nowadays, we have a jail or a prison that has walls and bars and things like that. But in the old days, they would have the shackle around your ankle with a chain and a ball, and this will keep you confined to a certain area. So these 10 fetters or these pollutions or taints is keeping the mind trapped in this unenlightened state, much like a prisoner. But you can eradicate those from the mind, and now the mind can be free or liberated. So the path to enlightenment is to purify the mind of those pollutions that are keeping it in the unenlightened state. Sometimes people refer to enlightenment as happiness or ultimate bliss. I don't refer to it this way because this is what you experience when you're in the jhanas. These are preliminary phases that the mind goes through before you get to the first stage of enlightenment. I'm going to be explaining to you what's called the four stages of enlightenment here in a moment. There's four specific stages that the mind goes through before it actually gets to enlightenment. But there's these preliminary phases that the mind goes through before it gets to the first stage of enlightenment. We refer to them as the jhanas. This is the only other word that I really need to use in Pali because it doesn't translate to one English word. The word jhana means meditative absorption or mental absorption, that the mind has absorbed a certain amount of the teachings, a certain amount of meditation you've absorbed over a consistent long-term period. And now as you're putting together the teachings of the Eightfold Path, which is the core central teaching that I'm going to teach you tomorrow, as you're practicing that more and more closely, you'll start seeing the qualities of the mind and the mind moving into the jhanas, these preliminary phases, certain qualities that you'll experience. Being off the path to enlightenment, to the mind being in these jhanas, it's like night and day. Whatever you've experienced in your life in terms of kind of an elevated state, whether that was induced by drugs or anything else, that pales in comparison to what you'll experience as your mind starts moving through the jhanas and into the stages of enlightenment. There are certain qualities of mind that start being experienced as your mind enters into that first jhana, which is like night and day compared to what you've experienced when you were off the path to enlightenment. And when your mind moves into that first jhana, you can oftentimes have this ultimate bliss. This is something that is experienced. And oftentimes people experiencing that jhana, they think they're enlightened and they will start explaining enlightenment as what they're experiencing. And this is where you can have some people that will tell you that enlightened beings still experience sadness or they still get annoyed or they still get irritated because they themselves are experiencing maybe the first jhana and they think that they are enlightened, so they start explaining that as enlightenment. But in reality, what they're really truly experiencing is the first jhana. Because in the first, second, third, fourth jhana, you're still experiencing discontentedness. Even in the first, second, and third stages of enlightenment, you're still experiencing discontentedness. It's not until you get to the fourth stage of enlightenment where the mind's actually enlightened and you no longer experience any discontentedness. So if somebody tells you that an enlightened being still gets irritated 
irritated or annoyed or frustrated. This isn't actually true. This isn't a person who's just not understanding what enlightenment is. And sometimes they can explain enlightenment as this ultimate happiness or this ultimate bliss. By the time you get to enlightenment, you will be happy. You will be having joy, but it's unconditioned happiness. It's not conditional happiness. In the jhanas, you still experience some conditional happiness. What conditional happiness is, is if this condition is met and this condition is met and this condition is met, then you will be happy. But when those conditions aren't met, you'll maybe be sad or frustrated or irritated or annoyed. So in these jhanas, and as your mind goes through the first, second, and third stages of enlightenment, there's the significant reduction to discontentedness, but you're still experiencing some amount of discontentedness. So if you hear somebody refer to enlightenment as ultimate bliss, this is like you're blissed out, this isn't what enlightenment is. Your mind is peaceful and calm, serene, content with joy. You're experiencing inner fulfillment. Your mind is fully satisfied. Your mind is experiencing the joy. Yes, you're going to have happiness, but it's unconditional happiness versus the conditional happiness that you still experience when the mind's in the jhanas. So these are some of the things to understand of what enlightenment is. Then let's talk about some of the advantages of attaining enlightenment. Of course, the mind's peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy permanently. Sometimes what I share with people is this is like the beginning of the rest of your life. Whatever you've been doing up to the point that you get to enlightenment, now once the mind is enlightened, you can accomplish anything and everything that you've ever been interested to do because your mind is well-tuned. It's performing very well. What you're doing is bringing the mind to the middle. If you think about a musical instrument, a musical instrument, if the string is too tight and you pluck it, it doesn't play beautiful music. It doesn't play the way the instrument was intended to play. But also if the string is too loose and you pluck that, the instrument doesn't play the way that it was intended to play. It doesn't play beautiful music. And the mind is the same way. In this instrument, if you tune the string perfectly in the middle and you pluck it, it plays beautiful music the way it was intended to play. And the mind is the same way, that if you tune your mind and fine tune it and bring it to the middle, it will perform optimally. So this is why I describe enlightenment as the beginning of the rest of your life, that no matter what it is that you're interested in doing or accomplishing in life, you can do it from that point forward. And you will have already been doing it as you make your way closer and closer to enlightenment. So if you've always been interested in learning how to fly a helicopter, for example, and you just had fear and you weren't able to do it and you didn't think you were smart enough, by the time you get to enlightenment, You'll have all the ability with your fine-tuned mind, your concentration, your clarity to go learn how to fly a helicopter or anything else, open a business or anything that you would like to do. You have this high degree of focus, concentration, memory, and clarity of mind, and that's the mind performing optimally. Because when these pollutions are in the mind, it doesn't perform optimally. It doesn't perform the way that it's intended to perform. So when you clear that pollution out of the mind, this is where you're experiencing the focus, the clarity, the concentration, the deep memory, and you'll be able to do anything and everything that you're interested in doing. You'll no longer experience any of these discontent feelings that I talk about as part of our discussions. I oftentimes will refer to this list of sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, stress, anxiety, boredom, loneliness, shyness, resentment, jealousy, displeasure, despair, all of that is eliminated from the mind. If you think about all the time that you've ever spent feeling frustrated and angry and irritated, 
you're going to have all this time back in your life. You know, you spend a certain amount of time just being disgruntled or agitated at people, broken relationships and struggles and difficulties. You're going to get all that time back to do whatever it is that you're interested in doing, certain hobbies, certain activities, certain professional work that you'd like to accomplish. You can have all that time available to you to then go off in the world and accomplish whatever it is that you'd like to accomplish. You'll have this deep wisdom of how to get to enlightenment, where the mind will be able to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all beings. Right now, you might find that that's a challenge for you. There might be certain beings that you consider that you like these people, and then there's other people that you might feel that you dislike these people. And you can be polite and kind and friendly and respectful to the people you like, but maybe the people that you dislike, you really struggle being polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to them. And that's only because of the pollutions that are in the mind and the mind's lacking wisdom. But when you cultivate the wisdom of how to train your mind and uproot these pollutions, you won't have this like and dislike. You'll love all beings. You'll be able to interact with all beings harmoniously. And you'll be able to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful to all beings around you. You'll notice that your personal and professional relationships will really blossom. Right now, there might be certain relationships that go really well for you, but there might be other relationships where there's some difficulties, some animosity, maybe some bitterness. Maybe you've had some struggles in the past in various relationships. And if that's what you've experienced, you're not a bad person. You haven't done anything wrong. It's just that your mind lacks wisdom. And as you learn and you train your mind, you'll see that you'll be able to interact with people more and more peacefully, more and more harmoniously, because you'll have the wisdom of how to actually do that. And you'll see that occurring more and more in your life. You'll have more sustaining, more fulfilling, more satisfying relationships, because you're going to be interacting in the world differently. So then people are going to be responding to you differently. Where right now, if you put out bitterness and hostility and animosity, this is what's going to come back to you to a certain degree. Or if you put out aggression, that's what's going to come back to you. But when you train your mind and you get rid of this pollution, you're not going to be functioning that way. And for longer and longer periods of time, you'll be interacting with people in loving and kind and compassionate and respectful ways. And more and more, this is what's going to be coming back to you. So these are some of the advantages or benefits of getting to enlightenment. Then let's talk about how to actually attain enlightenment. There are certain core and central teachings that you're going to need to learn. And I'm going to be sharing pretty much all of these teachings with you in this particular course. You're going to need to learn the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts. I'm going to be teaching you all those in this course. You're also going to need to learn the Brahma-Viharas and how to practice all of these teachings. I'm not going to be teaching the Brahma-Viharas specifically in this course, but I am going to be referencing them at one point tomorrow where I'm going to be teaching you guys about the Eightfold Path. We'll be kind of mentioning the Brahma-Viharas, although I might not be calling them out by name. You're going to need to learn the Ten Fetters, which I'm going to introduce you to today and help you start understanding what those are about. You'll need to learn the seven factors of enlightenment. The seven factors of enlightenment aren't to determine whether you are enlightened or you aren't enlightened. They're actually another tool, another technique that the Buddha uses in order to help you fine tune your mind. When you're first learning the path to enlightenment, it's like you're this big piece of wood and now you're creating this sculpture. 
And when you're first starting to learn, you maybe get out your hatchet or your axe and you start chopping off big chunks of wood to try to bring this piece of wood down to a nice, beautiful sculpture. And as you're chunking off these big chunks of wood at the very beginning, you know, it can be challenging and you're, because you're moving off these big chunks of wood. But then as you start fine tuning the sculpture a bit more, you might need to go in with kind of like a more fine tuned tool, like an X-Acto knife or, you know, a razor blade or something like this and put the eyelashes or the wrinkles in the skin on this beautiful sculpture that you're making. And the same thing is true as you're making this beautiful sculpture in the mind where you're training the mind and cultivating it. You're going to need this fine tool, which is the seven factors of enlightenment to go in and fine tune the mind. And this is something that you will ultimately learn and be able to help you to fine tune the mind and get it to the point where it's now performing optimally. And then, of course, you're going to need extensive meditation training. And you get that started here in this course. And then there's other courses and retreats that I teach to help you more further understand meditation. There's only four meditations that the Buddha actually taught. Nowadays, there's probably hundreds and thousands of meditations that you'll see in the world. But when you see what the actual problems are in the mind and you see how these meditations address those specific problems, you'll understand why you don't need 50 or 100 different meditations. If you tried to learn 50 or 100 different meditations, your practice would be very broad and it would be hard for you to have any depth in any one particular technique. But by you limiting down what you actually need to learn and practice, you can get really deep in your meditation practice. So even though the Buddha taught four meditations, there's really only two that you absolutely will need to learn. Those other two are kind of like specialized meditations that not everybody's going to necessarily need. They're there for you if you need them, but not in all situations will a student actually need all four. You might only need actually two. So this allows you to really specialize and get really deep into your practice. And I'm going to be teaching you one of those during this course and helping you to learn it and develop it. And then at the various programs and courses and retreats where you'd like to learn the other ones, I will be able to help you to learn those. They're all documented in this first book, volume one, chapter 11. You can see all four documented there. And I've taught courses and retreats on these before that are recorded and available to you. But since we're learning this foundational teachings to be able to help you get established on the path to enlightenment, I focus you on the primary form of meditation that the Buddha used, which is called breathing mindfulness meditation. So you're gonna to need to develop that over a period of time and these other meditations as well to develop this extensive meditation training of the mind. So these are the core central teachings that you need to learn, but there's other teachings beyond this. And if you're around learning with me in any of the various programs or courses or retreats, I'll help you to learn all those various teachings. But these are the ones that I suggest students focus on when they're first getting started. And as I mentioned at the beginning of our class today, you're not interested in believing any of these teachings. As I introduce them to you, I will teach you how to learn, reflect, and practice so that you can independently verify them. And that's what you'd like to do with each one one of these teachings as I introduce them to you and share them with you is to learn, reflect, and practice so that you're not believing anything. That's what's going to help you get to wisdom. Because with belief, you don't know what's true or false, and you're not going to be able to get to that unshakable mind. You know, if you grew up understanding or believing in the story of Santa Claus, some cultures have that, right? There was a certain period of time where you believed in Santa Claus, and then eventually you found out that Santa Claus doesn't exist, and your mind might have been shaken up by that. But now you know the truth. 
you know that Santa Claus does not exist. So it doesn't matter how many Christmas carols you hear about Santa Claus. It doesn't matter about how many people in big red suits that you see at the mall. You can't be convinced that Santa Claus exists. Your mind is unshakable on this topic. No matter what people say, no matter what people tell you, no matter how many presents you see on Christmas morning under the tree, you know with 100% certainty that Santa Claus does not exist because you no longer have that belief. You know the truth. You've cultivated wisdom. Your mind is unshakable on that topic. Well, the same thing needs to occur with all these other teachings that you get to the point where your mind is unshakable and you have wisdom to know the truth. And you do that through your own independent verification where a teacher is here to guide you and share teachings with you, but you're doing the work to independently verify it and get to that unshakable mind where you know the truth because you have wisdom. So these are the core central teachings to learn and implement in your practice. Do you guys have any questions on anything that I've shared so far? Do you have a question, sir? If you wouldn't mind using the microphones, that would be great. Uh, the question would be something like, um, something like this. I'm wondering if we are born with purity, and could we say that is enlightenment is somehow related to finding that child, that purity within us, um, the simplicity, the astonishment, every new experience. Um, also, I wonder about this question that Santa Claus does not exist. <laughs> Maybe he does. Maybe it's just a symbol of generosity. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a way to, to symbolize generosity that we And generosity does exist. I see. So I agree that generosity exists, but this individual that we refer to as Santa Claus with the large stomach and the gray beard and the hair, while this person may have existed at some point in the stories that were taught nowadays or maybe based on that story, that individual doesn't exist today. That it's not possible for one person to travel around the world in 24 hours and deliver presents to every single home that is there that this individual we know with 100% certainty does not exist today. But of course, generosity exists, but that's not Santa Claus, that's generosity. The enlightened mind and a being that is born into the world, they're not pure when we're born. That's the whole reason why we're being born, because our mind still has craving. That when we're born, we're in our mother's stomach or in the womb, and we're feeling all great. We have all this ambiotic fluid. We have this umbilical cord. We're hooked up to our mom. We're getting all the nutrients that we need. We're hanging out in a space that it's like, wow, life could not be better. And then eventually labor pains come along and we're pushed out into the world, or there's a surgery that we use to come into the world. And now, right away we're crying right away we're discontent our cravings get triggered that we're in that environment it couldn't be more perfect for us but now when we experience impermanence and we come out into the world because of our craving because of our longing our yearning our craving for permanence we become discontent so while the natural mind itself we could refer to it as enlightened or that brightness and radiance there's pollutions in the mind even from the time of birth, that are hindering an individual from being able to experience that. That's why we come into the world being discontent from the very beginning, because our mind has certain pollutions, and we wouldn't actually be born if we didn't have those pollutions in our mind. So 
in order to get to this enlightened mental state, you need to remove those pollutions out of the mind to be able to then experience the brightness and the radiance of that natural mind that we would refer to as the enlightened mind. Any other questions? Yes, sir. We have another mic too, or we can pass that one around as well. Yeah, so uh, I'm just curious, maybe it will come, but uh, what the Buddha said about enlightenment. Mm -hmm. So the Buddha, at least what we have in the, the Pali Canon, because what we have in the Pali Canon is not 100% of what the Buddha taught. What we have is we have this collection of teachings in 45 volumes of books, which is in the Pali language. This is a language that captures the original teachings of the Buddha. It's no longer a spoken language today, but we have these 45 large books that are about 10 centimeters thick or five inches thick. And this is what we have available to us today. And when you study the Pali Canon and you know what the path to enlightenment is, you'll understand that not everything that the Buddha taught is in the Pali Canon because over 2,500 years, there's been some impermanence. But the way you break through that is by learning, reflecting, and practicing. So what we have in the Pali Canon of the Buddha describing enlightenment is that he describes it as an unshakable mind. He describes it as a steady mind. He describes it as content. He describes it as someone who's not agitated. And he describes it as somebody, once you attain this mental state, that you no longer experience rebirth as well. So these are some of the things that he describes about it. And he also talks about the joy uh, that's in the mind in the enlightened mental state. A lot of the language that I'm using to describe enlightenment, he uses that same type of language. And he describes that in order to get to this enlightened mental state, that you need to eliminate craving, anger, and ignorance, and specifically the 10 fetters or the taints or the pollutions. So all the things that I'm teaching you is based on the original teachings of the Buddha. And then I'm helping you to further understand it through describing it in the way that is described in the Pali Canon, but then also through my own experiences as well. Mm -hmm. Thanks. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Anything else you guys would like to ask before we move on? Okay, so now let me help you guys to understand the 10 fetters. These are the 10 individual pollutions. They're referred to as fetters, as I mentioned, because of the chain and the shackle around your ankle and this ball that keeps the mind trapped in this unenlightened state. These are the 10 pollutions that are in the mind that need to be uprooted. And this is why the mind is not pure that it has these 10 pollutions. And once you learn about what these 10 pollutions are and the symptoms that you're experiencing because of them, you can independently verify that your mind actually has these particular pollutions. And then you implement the solutions and the remedies that the Buddha shares. And then by implementing those solutions and eradicating these from the mind, you see that the mind becomes more peaceful and more joyful. So not only can you learn the 10 fetters and then understand the symptoms that you're experiencing because of them, but you can learn the tools and techniques of how to eradicate them and then once you've eradicated them you'll be able to see the results that the mind is more and more peaceful and more joyful so i'm going to introduce you to all of these but i'm going to talk in detail about the first three because in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment you need to understand the first three and while this is a foundational course i'm going to just kind of introduce you to some of these because everything and anything that the buddha taught is guiding you to eliminate these 10 fetters it's not until you get to the jhanas that you really focus on these in a lot of detail when you're first getting started
started like this, you're learning the foundational teachings, like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the extensive meditation training, all those core teachings that I shared with you. But you kind of get introduced to the 10 fetters because this is kind of what's underlying it all. This is where the eightfold path and all those other teachings, they're helping you to eliminate these 10 fetters in one way or another. So it helps you to at least get introduced to them at this point, but just know that later on, you're gonna need to dig into them in more detail. So let's talk about the first one just a little bit. This one's called personal existence view. I talked about it yesterday in class. We're gonna talk about it a little bit more tomorrow. This is where the mind is clinging to this body and or this mind thinking that this is who you are as a person. There's a certain self-image or a certain self-identity that the mind's holding on to. And if you're perceived in the world the way you want to be perceived, then you'll experience pleasant feelings. But if your mind doesn't get what it wants related to this personal existence view, then you might feel painful feelings. So for example, if you have a certain self-image that the mind's holding on to, and now you spill chocolate ice cream or pizza sauce on your clothing, and you're in a social situation, you might get embarrassed. This is because of the mind's personal existence view, thinking that this body is you. And now when you got that spaghetti sauce or ice cream on you, you're thinking that this is you, that these clothes are you or this body is you. And now you're not being perceived in the world the way you want to be perceived. And you'll feel embarrassed perhaps or shy in that situation. Or maybe if you look in the mirror and you see a wrinkle or you see a pimple or a mole or you see that you're getting gray hair, or maybe you're losing your hair, or maybe you get a little extra fat here or there. You might be shaken up by this because you're thinking that this body is you, and now your mind can't reside peaceful and joyful. Or if somebody says something to you that is very complimentary, and they say, wow, your, your color of your eyes really come out with that color of shirt that you're wearing. You're so beautiful, or you're so handsome you might get all these pleasant feelings. But now it's only a matter of time before somebody says something degrading and disparaging, and now you experience painful feelings because they're commenting about your physical appearance and this self-image. And then the same thing is occurring with the self-identity. Certain culture, certain ethnicity, certain nationality, maybe your sexual orientation or your job or occupation, your mind might be clinging to this thinking that this is who you are as your self-identity. So now if you think I am American or I am British or I am Australian or I am Chinese or any of this I am, I am a Buddhist teacher, I am a boyfriend, I am a girlfriend, I am a police officer, I am a lawyer, any of this I am that the mind is holding on to is just the self-identity that the mind's clinging to. And now if somebody says something polite, kind, friendly, respectful, something that's agreeable to you about any of those things, then you'll experience the pleasant feelings. But when somebody says something degrading or disparaging about your nationality, your culture, your ethnicity, your sexual orientation, your job or occupation, you'll experience the painful feelings of sadness, anger, frustration, and others. And this is because the mind's clinging to this identity in the mind, thinking that this is who you are. Or if you've ever been in a job or occupation and you think that this is who you are, maybe when you retired or you lost that job, you might have really struggled, feeling kind of lost, kind of feel like empty inside that, you know, you don't even feel like you know yourself anymore. Sometimes people come to Thailand on this journey to find themselves. 
right? They feel like they've lost themselves or they don't even know who they are anymore. I need to, need to go find myself. I need to find my true self. And people come to Thailand looking for that, but they never really truly find them, their true self because the Buddha teaches that there is no self. They might find new hobbies, new activities, new friends. They might find a new job or occupation, but none of that stuff is actually you. But if the mind is thinking that that is you, and now you're holding on to it, when all those things start changing, when your job changes, when this physical body changes and all this other stuff, if you have this personal existence view in the mind, you will become discontent as a result. So this needs to be eradicated from the mind. And some of those examples that I just gave can potentially help you to see that your mind does have this personal existence view. And you can get liberated from this by eradicating this from the mind. And there's certain tools and techniques to be able to help you do that. And I taught this yesterday, but we're gonna learn a little bit about this more tomorrow. Then there's this other fetter or taint or pollution or defilement called doubt. What doubt is, is doubt is where you have doubt about the Buddha, the teachings, the community that you're part of, your teacher, or your own ability to attain enlightenment. When you first come to the path to enlightenment, people typically have doubt, and that's normal, that you have doubt whether this person, the Buddha, actually lived, whether his teachings actually lead to this enlightened mental state, whether this community that you're part of, is it really supportive? Is it really going to help you to get to enlightenment? Can your teacher actually help you to get to enlightenment? And can you actually get to enlightenment? Do you have the ability? Do you have the capability? You might have doubt whether or not you have the capability to get to enlightenment. And this is a hindrance. This is a fetter or a pollution or a taint that is going to keep you in the unenlightened state if you have that doubt. But the way that you eradicate this doubt is not through blind belief. You don't just believe things through faith or something like that. The way that you eradicate your doubt is you investigate the teachings. You examine them. You peer into them. That's what's going to help you to eradicate the doubt because as you're learning and investigating and examining the teachings and then you're reflecting on them to independently verify them and seeing more and more that they're true, and then you're practicing the teachings to eradicate these pollutions out of the mind, and you start seeing your mind becoming more peaceful and joyful, your relationships are improving, you're noticing the clarity and concentration in your mind is starting to become more and more profound, you'll eventually get to the point where you have no doubt that these teachings are leading to an improved condition of mind and a improved condition of your life. You won't be enlightened yet, by the time you eliminate doubt, you'll still be experiencing some discontentedness, but you will have seen significant improvement to the condition of the mind that you will have no doubt that you're headed towards enlightenment. You will no longer doubt the Buddha. You will no longer doubt his teachings. You will no longer doubt this community that's supporting you to helping you to get to enlightenment. You'll no longer doubt your teacher's ability to help you. And you'll no longer doubt your own ability to get to enlightenment because you've already been making your way to enlightenment. You've already been doing the work and improving the condition of the mind. So that's how you eliminate doubt is through investigating and examining the teachings by learning, reflecting, and practicing. That's what gets you to eliminate the doubt. Then there's this wrong behavior and observances. What this is, is the first part of this, the wrong behavior part. This is certain moral conduct that you might be having right now where you're causing harm in the world. Maybe through your intentions, your speech, your actions, your livelihood. Maybe you're being bitter and harsh and hostile and having animosity or resentment towards other beings. And when you're putting that out, that's coming back to you. 
So the Buddha teaches you through the Eightfold Path, which you're going to study tomorrow, how to clean this up so that you can get to a point where you're no longer putting out harmful conduct so that less and less harm is coming back to you. If you're interested in getting to this peaceful and joyful mental state, you're going to need to do some work to improve the way that you interact with others. And this is the guidance that the Buddha is going to provide for you. So by the time you eliminate this particular fetter, you will have cleaned up your moral conduct to the level that you see in the Eightfold Path that I'm going to teach you tomorrow. And then this other part of this fetter or this taint or pollution is called wrong observances. What this is, is rites, rituals, ceremonies, worship. This is where the mind is having the misperception or the misunderstanding that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship are going to lead to some kind of improved condition of mind. You might have been exposed to those things in the past. You might have done those things in the past. But when you get to the understanding what the core central problem is in the unenlightened mind, which we're going to be talking about in this course, you start to understand that it's ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. We refer to this in the way using this word ignorance, I tend to like to use the word unknowing of true reality, or at least that phrase. Some people use the, the term confusion or misunderstanding because the word ignorance is kind of like a derogatory word nowadays. And the Buddha wouldn't have talked in a derogatory way. An enlightened being doesn't talk in a derogatory way. And surely a Buddha doesn't either. So this unknowing of true reality is a better description of what really is the true problem in the mind. It's actually one of the fetters. It's the 10th fetter that the mind just doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. That's the reason why you come to the temple and you come into the, these courses and retreats to learn and gain wisdom. So this unknowing of true reality is what's causing the mind to continue to have these pollutions in the mind. Because your mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand, it doesn't understand these pollutions. These pollutions continue to exist in the mind. So the way that you antidote ignorance or the unknowing of true reality is you get to wisdom. You learn, reflect, and practice. It's the wisdom that's going to transform the mind away from ignorance and be able to cultivate the mind. So if you understand this, and you'll understand it more and more as I teach you this week, then you understand that there's no right ritual, ceremony, or worship that can produce wisdom in your mind. It doesn't matter how much water I sprinkle on you. It doesn't matter how many strings I tie around your wrist. It doesn't matter how many wafers you put on your tongue. It doesn't matter how many times you do these kinds of things and you kneel and stand up and kneel and stand up. These kinds of things isn't going to lead to wisdom in your mind. So even though these kinds of things exist, even in Buddhist centers, you can go to Buddhist temples where people are dressed as a monk. They might be wearing a robe. They might have shaved their head. They might have been ordained for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And these rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship were shared with them. So they believe that these are actually part of the teachings of the Buddha. But the Buddha actually never taught any rites, rituals, ceremonies, or worship because it doesn't lead to enlightenment. What he's guiding you towards is wisdom to learn, reflect, and practice, to get to wisdom. So if somebody thought that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship leads to enlightenment, and they were continuing to do those things, thinking that it's going to improve the condition of their mind, this will hinder them. This will obstruct them from being able to do what they really need to do, which is cultivate the wisdom. So if you went home and you know it was a certain holiday and your family was interested in going to a church or a synagogue or a mosque or something like this, and you go hang out with them as a family, okay, 
Go hang out with them. Be with them as a family. If they're doing rites and rituals and ceremonies at this place, sure, go have fun. Spend time with your family. But it's all about what your mind understands. That if you're sitting there thinking like, oh, yeah, let me kiss the ring of this person or let me, you know, put this wafer here or let me, you know, bow down to this statue this many times and that's what's going to produce an improved condition of your mind, it still has these wrong observances. But if you're in those environments and you understand that, oh, yeah, this doesn't and lead to enlightenment, but you're just hanging out with your family, you're hanging out with your friends. It's not like you're going to, you know, have this pollution. Your mind doesn't have that pollution. You're just going there to spend time with your friends and family. So it's not about what you should or shouldn't do with these wrong observances. It's about what your mind understands. If you understand that rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship doesn't lead to an improved condition of mind, then you might have already potentially eliminated this aspect of this particular fetter. Because oftentimes, Time students have been involved in those kinds of things and you've experienced those kinds of things and you know that, yeah, they don't lead to any improvement in your life. And so you might have actually already eliminated a certain portion of this particular fetter. But then if you decide to hang out with your friends and go to those kinds of places, it's not like you're going to melt away just because, you know, you are around those kinds of experiences. So this is what wrong behavior and observances is. If at any point you ever see rites, rituals, ceremonies, or worship associated with the teachings of the Buddha, right away you know that those aren't the teachings of the Buddha. Because you can be in situations where you're at a Buddhist temple or you're around people who are ordained that do rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship. And this is just unfortunate that they haven't learned the original teachings of the Buddha, so they just don't know. And you shouldn't judge those people. You shouldn't look down on those people or think any negative thoughts about those individuals. That's just where they are in their journey, that they're still doing rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship, and they haven't learned that that's not what the Buddha actually taught. So in those settings where you see those things, and you'll see those if you go on the field trip with me on Friday, you're going to see some rites and rituals and ceremonies and worship, but I will sit back and I'll explain to you what they're doing and what they're thinking that, that it's accomplishing so that then you can see the truth that it doesn't actually work to accomplish what it is that people are thinking that these things are accomplishing. So this is what wrong behavior and observances is. And then there's sensual desire and ill will. These are things that you're going to learn as you go forward on your journey to enlightenment. But let me share this one here with you, which is conceit. We talked about this one yesterday too, but some of you guys weren't here. But let me introduce this to you because this is something that's really deeply rooted in the mind and it causes all kinds of complications and you're going to need to eradicate it in order to get to enlightenment among all these other fetters. What conceit is, is it's arrogance, it's pride, it's judging other people, it's measuring and comparing, putting yourself above people or below people. This is part of the ego, if you've ever heard about the ego. So if you have this conceit in your mind, you're going to notice that your mind wants to be arrogant or prideful or boastful, that you might be putting yourself above people. And your mind there might be talking down to certain people in kind of a diminishing and degrading way. But in other situations, you might be putting yourself below people and your mind is shaken up and feeling uncalm when you're around that person. Where what you would like to do is get to the point where you just see everybody as equal. That you're not above people, you're not below people, you just see everybody as equal. Even if you're in a situation where you're meeting the president of your country or the prime minister of your country, they're performing a different role than you, but they're not above you. They're not more important than you. They're not a better person than you. They're just performing a different role. But also if you go out and you meet a street sweeper that's sweeping the street, 
They're not below you. They're just performing a different role. Still important role. We like to have clean streets and we like to have a leader of our country that is making wise decisions. So you can see yourself as just being equal to all these people. But when there's conceit in the mind, the mind might be interested in judging somebody based on how they appear, based on what they look like, based on their credentials, based on their financial status or any number of things. And you might be judging that other person, putting yourself above them or below them. And then if you're doing that, you might also be judging yourself. And you might have this negative self-talk. You might have this internal dialogue where you're diminishing and degrading yourself and you're judging yourself and beating yourself up for certain things that you do. So as long as you're judging others, you're going to tend to judge yourself and beat yourself up and have this unhealthy inner dialogue. So by eradicating conceit, not only will you not be judging others, but you'll improve this inner dialogue and you'll be able to be more healthy with your inner dialogue and your inner internal talk to your to this being who you are. And it takes time to gradually eradicate all these fetters. And conceit is one that really takes a lot of time to work on. In chapter 16, which I taught yesterday, I go through in detail about how to eradicate this one, as well as personal existence view. And there are certain retreats and courses and programs where I teach all of these. But right now in a foundational course, I'm just kind of introducing you to these. So you'll understand what's kind of underlying all this work that you're doing in order to learn the Eightfold Path and all the other teachings. And then as I mentioned, this 10th fetter is ignorance. This is the unknowing of true reality. This is where the mind lacks wisdom of things like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the natural law of gamma, and all these other teachings that you're going to be learning. Your mind needs to awaken to the wisdom of these teachings. This is the last fetter. This is like the fetter of all fetters. The way that you eradicate ignorance is not through just intellectual learning. You're going to need to do a certain amount of intellectual learning. That's part of the path to enlightenment. But it's when you're moving the teachings into practice that that's where you're truly eradicating the ignorance. That if you're intellectually understanding the teachings, but you're not practicing them, meaning you could learn something like right speech, for example, about how to be polite, kind, friendly, and respectful through your speech. But if you're not practicing it, the mind still has ignorance because you're not able to put those teachings into practice yet. It's still defiled by this unknowing of true reality. So you can have people that are scholars or academics or researchers, anthropologists, or maybe even historians that learn the teachings of the Buddha to a certain level intellectually, but they're not yet practicing the teachings. And that's because there's still ignorance in the mind. So if your mind is experiencing any discontentedness, even the slightest ickiness, it still has this ignorance or this unknowing of true reality. The mind hasn't fully cultivated wisdom to get to what the Buddha describes as final knowledge. When you get to enlightenment and you fully eradicate ignorance, the mind's fully cultivated wisdom, you've now gotten to final knowledge where the mind fully understands the path to enlightenment, not just intellectually, but you're actually practicing it, that you should see that you're practicing the teachings on a consistent, ongoing basis. To get to that point where you're practicing the teachings, it'll be challenging. You gotta bring your practice up to that. You've got these pollutions that are in there fighting you, right? So you gotta gradually work to bring your practice up to that level. But once you get to the point where you've attained final knowledge and you fully eradicated ignorance, you'll be practicing these teachings effortlessly. Right now, you might struggle when you're 
choosing to meditate or when you're talking to your parents or your siblings. You might really struggle in those conversations and those relationships. But by the time you get to enlightenment and you fully eradicate ignorance, there won't be any more struggles. You'll be practicing these teachings effortlessly. It'll just feel like first nature. Essentially what you're doing on this path to enlightenment is it's like upgrading your operating system of your computer. If you have a computer that's running kind of an old archaic operating system, it's kind of cumbersome, but you've kind of gotten used to it to a certain degree, but you still get frustrated and agitated about it every once in a while. But over time, as this operating system needs to be upgraded, you incrementally upgrade it to maybe version 9.0. And when you first get upgraded, it's like, oh man, this is really challenging to kind of learn where they moved all the icons around and how to use this operating system. But after about two or three weeks or so, you're like, man, this operating system works so much better. I'm glad I upgraded. Where initially it's quite challenging to learn that operating system. But then once you learn it, it's like, wow, this is so easy. This is effortless. Why didn't they do this a long time ago? This is so much better. So right now it's like your mind's on unenlightened 1.0. And now what you do is you incrementally upgrade your operating system of the mind in order to get to enlighten 9.0. And as you're going through those incremental upgrades and you're moving more and more of this pollution out of the mind, you'll have certain challenges and it'll feel awkward and strange at different times. But by the time you get to enlightenment, your mind will be performing optimally and you'll be effortlessly practicing these teachings. It won't feel like a challenge or a struggle any longer. But on your way to it, just like that operating system, you'll be challenged along the way. But then eventually you'll see like, oh my goodness, life is so much easier when you understand the natural laws of existence because you'll now be functioning and making wise decisions that are producing those wholesome results. So these are a little introduction to these 10 fetters. You see, I didn't go through each one of them uh, because right now I'm just kind of introducing you to a couple of them. Do you guys have any questions on any of these? Yes, sir. We have a microphone. You have one as well. Okay, go ahead since you got the mic and then we'll pass it over. There's another mic somewhere. Yeah, I didn't cover all of them. If you'd like me to talk about six and seven, I can. Uh, so what six and seven are is this is where you have a craving to exist in the world, either in the form realm, which is the human realm and the animal realm, which has physical form, or someone might have a desire to exist in one of the formless realms, like heaven or afflicted spirits or hell. There's people who want to be in hell, right? Not very many, but there are people who want to be in hell. So if you have a desire, a craving for existence in one of these realms, maybe you've been taught that your ultimate goal is to get to heaven and be there permanently, then there's a certain, maybe a craving to exist in that realm, either a form realm or a formless realm. And by the time you get to eliminating these two fetters, you no longer have that craving for existence. You don't have craving for existence, but you don't have craving for non-existence either. Your mind is in the middle. And by the time you've eliminated these two fetters, you no longer have a fear of death that you've eliminated any kind of fear of death. Right now, you might have a fear of your own death, but by the time you get to enlightenment, you won't even fear death itself, that you will just be content and joyful and peaceful in the present moment, and you'll understand that death is part of the equation, and you don't fear it. You don't desire to die, but you aren't afraid of death either, so your mind is in the middle. Mm -hmm. You have a question, Rasmus? Well, I'm wondering what's the deal with higher and lower well, what's the logic behind that in a way that's what you're going to see here right now let me show you guys that any other questions before we move on from this yeah okay 
Um, let me just... So, with the ego, mm -hmm. uh, would you say that our, when, when our ego is in conceit um, and we kind of deem, or we treat ourselves like worse than others, so we, uh, are we deeming ourselves as inferior to everyone else when we have that like bad, I don't know, I just know lots of people who can treat others with kindness and respect and and then love or whatever, but then with themselves, they really struggle to show themselves that kind of kindness and compassion. Would you say that if that's our ego deeming us inferior and them superior or? In some cases, yes. And what's really happening as well is this ill will, this bitterness, this hostility, this uh, resentment, frustration, that is in there. That's also, you know, causing that to occur but yes in some cases that ego can be doing that as well mm -hmm. yes sir you guys are so polite carrying the mics around helping each other <laughs> we have two you guys can hang After uh, you know, maybe we have one on one side of the room one on the other or one in the back one in the front yeah yeah you guys can use both Yes, sir. Well, my question was related mm -hmm. to the idea of uh, rituals, and uh, I go to, I have visited several uh, Buddhist centers, and uh, there's a different Asamil uh, Mantra, Taravev, and different types of chants where there's includes meditation. And here we do have something called daily chants before and after meditation. So I'm wondering if this is not also a type of ritual, the chants, sure. singing. So chants are not necessarily something negative. Yeah. Or, or rituals in that sense. Sure, let me help you. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, he used chanting as a way to help his students to commit his teachings to memory because he taught orally. Nothing was written down during his lifetime. So once every two weeks, his students would come together to recite his teachings word for word as a way to commit the teachings to memory, not as a mystical, magical thing or anything like this. This is what I'm going to be teaching this afternoon when I talk about chanting. I'm going to explain to you why we actually chant. Now, nowadays, 2,500 years later, some people have assigned mystical, magical things to these chants. They've become rites, ritual, ceremonies, and worship for other people. But the way that I present it to you and the way that I'm going to teach it to you and the way that I employ it in my own practice is as a way to ease the mind into meditation and get more benefit out of the meditation itself. So it's not a rite, a ritual, or a ceremony, or worship, or any prayer, or anything like that. But because we oftentimes chant in a language that doesn't exist any longer, sometimes the way people think is the less you know about something, the more mystical and magical it is. So some people don't understand what these words mean. I put the English translations on there so you understand what they mean. But they're not a rite, a ritual, or a ceremony, a worship. They're not prayer. They're not invoking any kind of anything to come and change something for you. But it's a way to help you get more benefit out of the meditation itself. But you will see people that will present chants as a way of teaching you that there are some kind of mystical or magical benefits. But we're going to be discussing that this afternoon. But just know the chance that I use, there's no mystical or magical benefit, and it's not a right ritual, ceremony, or worship. In regards to um, 
teachings. Uh, he taught, I, I think, from age 35 to 80 or something like that, maybe. Anyway. Uh, Is it turned on? Yeah, so maybe just speak directly into the okay. mic. Okay. There you go. Uh, well, the, uh, um, I was wondering whether there was a development of Buddhist thought, so his teachings were different than 35, or was it uh, after enlightenment? Was it evolutionary uh, quality to his teachings? I see. So from the time that somebody gets to enlightenment, which the Buddha would have gotten to enlightenment at the age of 35, you've attained final knowledge at that point. You fully understand the path to enlightenment, particularly a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. And whatever leads to your enlightenment, you will never forget those teachings. You will never confuse those teachings. You will deeply know them with deep wisdom. So whatever he was teaching from the age of 35, he would have been teaching the same thing by the age of 80. It's the path to enlightenment. It's the natural laws of existence. He wouldn't have <clears throat> slipped in something at the age of 60 that was different than what he was teaching at the age of 40. That when he started teaching, he was explaining what led to his enlightenment. He might have found unique analogies to describe what it was. He might have figured out, uh, you know, connecting these words together, kind of helping a student understand it a little bit better. But it's the same teaching from the time you get to enlightenment all the way until your death. The Buddha doesn't change their teachings. They're sharing with you what it is that led to their enlightenment. The teachings of a Buddha, they don't have conflict or contradictions in them. From the age of 35 to 80, for 45 years, he never contradicted himself. And for those of you guys that are teachers, or maybe you've been in a teaching environment, you might find that it's kind of challenging for you to teach and not contradict yourself from one day to the next or one week to the next. You might find that sometimes you're learning new things and you do need to contradict yourself. But by the time somebody gets to enlightenment, they have this final knowledge where they fully understand the path to enlightenment and nothing they share will be in conflict with anything else. So for 45 years, he never conflicted in anything that he taught and what he would have taught would have been exactly the same from the beginning of his teaching career to the end although a teacher might find a unique analogy or a certain way to explain something in a better way but the core teaching that they're describing is the same exact teaching anything else let's see if we have any questions here we've got a, a few people here online joining us i'm not seeing any questions here online Okay, so now that you're starting to be introduced to the 10 fetters, now I'm going to show you how by eliminating these fetters, the mind moves through the four stages of enlightenment. There's these lower fetters and then these higher fetters. And what the mind does is it moves through these four stages of enlightenment. You can easily refer to them as the first, second, third, fourth stage of enlightenment. And the mind's actually enlightened when you get to the fourth stage. But the Buddha actually gives them actual names. There's stream enter, once returner, non-returner, and arahant. The reason why it refers to the first stage of enlightenment as a stream enterer is because just like a log enters the stream and it's going to eventually get to the ocean, once you get to that first stage of enlightenment, you're going to eventually get to enlightenment. It's only a matter of time. So just like the logs are going to eventually get to the ocean, you're going to eventually get to enlightenment. It's only a matter of time if you get to that first stage of enlightenment. So that's why it's called a stream enter, because you've entered the stream. 
then we refer to it as a once returner because once you get to the second stage of enlightenment, you're going to be reborn just one more time and you're going to come back to the world and get to enlightenment in that next birth. Then there's what's called a non-returner. <clears throat> when you get to that stage of enlightenment, you're going to be reborn into the heavenly realm and you're going to be experiencing enlightenment in that heavenly realm. And you're not going to be coming back to this world any longer. You're a non-returner. You're not coming back to the human realm ever again. And then this word arahant, this is a word that they use during the lifetime of the Buddha to mean that the mind is completely purified, that there are no fetters in the mind whatsoever. So that's what an arahant is. There's also something called a Buddha. A Buddha is not a stage of enlightenment. It's an individual. A Buddha is an arahant. They've eliminated all the 10 fetters from the mind, but they've done that in a unique way, that they've done it on their own without the help of any teachers or any guides. Some places you go, some books you read, some content you read or take in through videos and other places about the teachings of the Buddha, they will tell you that everybody is a Buddha that you have Buddha nature. And when you get to enlightenment, you will be a Buddha. But this isn't actually true, that the Buddha never said that, but people nowadays are saying that. This is one's own ego, thinking that they are a Buddha, not understanding what an actual Buddha is. So a Buddha isn't a stage of enlightenment, it's a unique individual. It's a very rare individual that doesn't exist in the world very frequently. The last one that the world's currently aware of existed over 2,500 years ago. So let me share with you what these individual stages are and how you move through them. And then we'll talk a little bit more about what a Buddha is. So in order to get to the first stage of enlightenment, you would need to eliminate the first three fetters, personal existence view, doubt, wrong behavior and observances. That's why I taught that to you first and kind of introduce you to these three in a little bit more detail than I did some of the others. You're going to need to get those foundational teachings that I mentioned in order to help you first develop your foundational practice. And then from that point, you'll start experiencing the jhanas, those preliminary phases that the mind goes through. Then you'll start focusing on these first three fetters and the mind will move into this first stage of enlightenment. And this is how you get to the stage of stream enterer. And then if you die in that stage of enlightenment, you will come back to the human realm no more than seven times. So it doesn't mean you have to be reborn seven times, but if you die in that stage, there'll be no more than seven rebirths before you actually get to enlightenment. From there, an individual can continue in their development and get to the second stage, which is called a once returner, where you've already eliminated the first, second, and third fetter, but you kind of thin out central desire and ill will. So if you're noticing some of your central desires are starting to thin out as you age, maybe you're not as interested in sex anymore. Maybe other central desires aren't as pleasing to you anymore. This is potentially because your central desire is starting to diminish a bit. This is a kind of a natural occurrence that occurs. This is why somebody can actually attain enlightenment during this life, but you can also attain enlightenment at death as well. But as you apply effort and energy to eliminating these fetters, you can actively eliminate central desire, but sometimes naturally on its own, some central desires kind of naturally phase out. And that's what this second stage of enlightenment is, is that central desire and ill will are kind of reduced and thinned out. They haven't been eliminated yet. By the time you get to the third stage of enlightenment as a non-returner, you've eliminated the five lower fetters, that all of these have been completely eliminated from the mind. And if you die in that stage of enlightenment, 
you won't come back to the human realm anymore. You'll be reborn into the heavenly realm and then you'll attain enlightenment from there. Those beings are still in the cycle of rebirth in the heavenly realm. It's not a permanent existence and it's not the ideal existence because those beings oftentimes are somewhat complacent. They're not interested in learning and practicing the teachings. But if you're a non-returner and you move into the heavenly realm, you will get to enlightenment from there. But there's other ways to get to the heavenly realm besides being in the third stage of enlightenment. You can still get into the heavenly realm without being in the third stage of enlightenment. So those other beings tend to not practice to be able to get to enlightenment. But if somebody's gotten to the third stage of enlightenment and is reborn in the heavenly realm, they will get to enlightenment in that existence. And then the fourth stage we refer to as arahant. This person has eliminated all the 10 fetters and they're not going to be reborn anywhere at all. The Buddha leaves it as an undeclared teaching of once you attain enlightenment, what happens next? It's very clear and you can see more and more as you independently verify that if you don't get to enlightenment, there is rebirth and you continually get reborn over and over and over again, giving you opportunities to cultivate the wisdom that you need to escape this continuous cycle of rebirth. But by the time you get to enlightenment, you've eliminated all these 10 fetters. Your mind is completely peaceful, completely joyful, but the Buddha doesn't declare what comes next. And I have certain reasons why I think he probably didn't declare what is next. He actually declared it as an undeclared teaching because there are certain points in his teachings where he says, remember, monks or remember students, this is what I taught. This is what I declared. And he gives his teachings. He says, this is what I taught. And he says, remember what I did not teach. I did not teach this. He declares what are his undeclared teachings. And one of those undeclared teachings is what comes next after enlightenment. So I su suspect various reasons why he didn't teach this. And I put it in the book series and I share it if students ask me to share it. But there's certain reasons that I feel that he did not share what comes next. If there's even anything that is next, he didn't share whether there is something or there isn't something. But by the time you get to enlightenment, your mind is so peaceful and so joyful, you're not going to care what's next. So the path to enlightenment isn't about believing a bunch of things and then hoping something good happens when you die. That's not what the path to enlightenment is. So the Buddha is focusing you on learning and practicing now in this life to be able to get to the peace and joy in this life. So there's various reasons why I could share that he didn't teach this if you guys are ever curious or if you ever read the, the rest of the book series. So now let's talk about what a Buddha is. We refer to a Buddha as a fully perfectly enlightened one or a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha. What a Buddha is, is an individual who gets to enlightenment by themselves. So they are an arahant. They've eliminated all 10 fetters, but they do that by themselves without the help of any teachers or any guides where you're going to need teachers. You're going to need guides. You're not going to be able to do it by yourself. You're going to need someone to point out to you and show you how to progress to enlightenment. But an individual who becomes a Buddha, they can actually do it by themselves without the help of any teachers or any guides. And you will see how challenging it is in some cases to move the mind to enlightenment. And you have a lot of respect for this person who actually did it all by himself without the help of any teachers or any guides. And then once they awaken to enlightenment, they declare those independently discovered teachings. They share them with other people for the remaining time of their life. They dedicate the rest of their life to sharing those independently discovered teachings with others. And then during their lifetime, 
countless people get to enlightenment. You wouldn't be able to count how many people got to enlightenment. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there were countless people who got to enlightenment. And they knew they got to enlightenment because they could see the condition of their mind had improved and to the point where their mind was peaceful and joyful for the rest of their life. So they declare these teachings, teaching for the rest of their life, and countless people get to enlightenment. Then they leave their teachings in such a condition that countless more people get to enlightenment after their death. So they preserve their teachings. So the Buddha preserved his teachings in the minds of individuals, that as individuals got to enlightenment during his lifetime and they chanted his teachings word for word for word, eventually when he died, the technology to write things down made its way to that region of the world and they were then able to write things down. Because at that time of the life of the Buddha, the technology to write things down existed in China, but it didn't exist in that region of the world. The language that the Buddha taught in wasn't even a, a language that had a script. It was only exclusively an oral tradition, that they didn't even have a script to write things down. So once the technology made it to that region of the world to write things down, they then kind of invented a script and they started writing things down after his death. But he ensured the preservation of his teachings by the chanting that his students did. And then countless more people got to enlightenment after his death. Even today, there's still people getting to enlightenment based on his teachings. So this is how we know that he's a Buddha because he meets all three of these criteria. And this is why during his lifetime, Time, not everybody actually knew that he was a Buddha because all three criteria hadn't been met yet. He was only doing the first two. It wasn't until he died that more and more people were like, ah, he's a Buddha. Oh, okay. Look, people are still getting to enlightenment after he's died. So we knew that he met all three criteria. So today we know him as the Buddha, but during his lifetime, it was only certain people that knew he was actually a Buddha. Then the thing that helps a Buddha to actually be able to get to enlightenment by themselves without the help of any teachers or any guides is this other criteria, that the person who's going to become a Buddha, they have a profound memory. They have a very deep, profound memory, even in the unenlightened state. They can remember countless things about their current life and their previous lives as well. For you, you have a certain capacity in your mind. It's kind of like a hard drive. Maybe you have 500 gigabytes or one terabyte or something like that. And then as you experience new things in life, you need to delete old files in order to store new files. So this is why if you think about your childhood, you just have spotty memories. You can remember a couple of things here and there, but not in a bunch of excruciating detail. You can just remember kind of spotty things. But in the last five or 10 years, you can probably remember things pretty closely because you've got those current files. But because you have a certain capacity, you have to delete old files in order to store new files. But a person who's gonna become a Buddha, they don't have that limitation. They have an unlimited capacity to remember things in their mind. They can remember things about their current life in excruciating detail and their past lives as well. So now what they do is they accumulate wisdom over many lifetimes that in their last life, they put all that together in order to then get to enlightenment, that they put all that wisdom that they accumulated over many lifetimes and now it all comes together in their last life and they figure out on their own without the help of any teachers or guides how to get to this enlightened mental state. And then that's when they declare the teachings that it took for them to get to that enlightened mental state and then they help countless people get to enlightenment preserving their teachings 
for countless more people to get to enlightenment. So this deep, profound memory that an individual who's going to become a Buddha has, this is what helps them to get to enlightenment by themselves. And then they use that memory to then be able to help their students during their lifetime. This is why a Buddha can actually help countless people get to enlightenment, because they understand the teachings very deeply, very profoundly. They spend their rest of their life putting lights down along the path to enlightenment and illuminating the path so that more and more people can actually understand what it takes to get to enlightenment and then actually attain enlightenment. And because their memory is so deep and they have so much wisdom, they can share those teachings in such a profound way that another person wouldn't be able to. So even an enlightened being, and a person who gets to enlightenment, if they chose to teach, they could teach and they could guide other people to enlightenment, but not in the same way as an actual Buddha. A Buddha has such deep, profound wisdom that they can help countless people get to enlightenment. So this is one of the criteria that makes a Buddha a Buddha. Then a Buddha can quickly determine the condition of the mind of somebody else. So when they interact with their students, they can see the wholesome qualities that are in their student's mind, and they can see the unwholesome qualities that are in their student's mind. This is one of the reasons why a Buddha doesn't go around performing a bunch of miracles, because they're interested in maintaining this ability to be able to observe the mind of their students. Whereas if everybody knew they were a Buddha, they would be on their best behavior when they were around that person. So by a Buddha kind of being undercover, so to speak, right? Like if you had a police officer standing on a uniform on the corner of a street, everybody would be on their best behavior. But if you have someone in plain clothes standing on the street corner, that police officer is going to see a whole lot more things going on in the community. So a Buddha is the same way. When people don't know who the Buddha is, he can see the quality of the mind of their students much more profoundly and then be able to help them with teachings to be able to help them move to the enlightened mental state. And this helps the student and it helps the Buddha to actually do what the Buddha is actually trying to do, which is help as many people get to enlightenment as possible. That's the best way to preserve your teachings as a Buddha is to help as many people get to enlightenment because once they get to enlightenment they will have that deep profound wisdom and then over time there'll be certain people that choose to teach and share those teachings as well so a buddha is going to use this ability to determine the condition of someone else's mind to then be able to help them share teachings that are going to help them get to enlightenment but the buddha would only share teachings with somebody who asks him for guidance a buddha doesn't go off into the world beating a drum, holding picket signs, and trying to force people or control people to learn his teachings, right? He's just going to teach people who come to decide to learn with him. He might invite them and welcome them in, but it's up to the individual to choose to learn. You can't force or control somebody to get to enlightenment. Each person has to decide to do that on their own. And then one of the last criteria to determine a Buddha, that this person is a Buddha, is that they're going to be a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings. A Buddha doesn't teach one thing and then do something completely different. So if a Buddha is teaching people to be polite and respectful, you'll see that they're going to be polite and respectful. If you're going to see a Buddha teaching something like right speech or right action, which you guys are going to learn tomorrow, they're going to be practicing that because a Buddha understands that they do teach through their spoken words, through their ver verbal communication, but they also teach just as much, if not more, through their actions, that their students are observing their actions and the way that they interact in the world, and then they're going to use that as a role model. So a Buddha isn't going to be teaching one thing and doing something else. We might call this practice what you preach. 
right? A Buddha is not preaching. That's not what they're doing. They're just sharing teachings and guidance to be able to help you get to this enlightened mental state, but they're going to be practicing what they're teaching. They're going to be a living, breathing, walking example of their teachings so that their students can learn just as much through observing them in the world as they do when they sit down and talk in a conversation like this or in a, in a class like this. So do you guys have any questions on this? Yes, ma'am. Can we use the mic? Mm -hmm. Yeah. We have some people online that are joining us. And then these classes are being recorded as well. So if you'll be able to watch them later. I, um, I just wonder, is the Dalai Lama a Buddha? So the Buddha, or I'm sorry, the, the Dalai Lama, uh, I've seen an interview where he said that he's not enlightened. He's not a Buddha. This is a different tradition of Buddhist teachings than what you're learning here. There's three main schools of Buddhist teachings. There's what's called the Theravada tradition, which means the teachings of the elders. This is the form of Buddhist teachings that is considered to be the closest to the time of the death of the Buddha. Then there's what's called Mahayana tradition, which is from China. And this is kind of a layer removed from what the Buddha taught. It's about 500 to 1,000 years after his death. And then there's what's called Vajrayana Buddhism, which is in Tibet. Really, these traditions have been spread all throughout the world, but these traditions get farther and farther away from what the Buddha actually taught. So if you look at Tibetan Buddhism or Vajrayana Buddhism, there are a lot of rites, ritual ceremonies, and worship in that tradition. And the Dalai Lama is a monk that is in that tradition. He's a well-known monk, but he has said in an interview that he's not enlightened, so therefore he wouldn't be able to be a Buddha. that you're enlightened? Uh, so, so a Buddha wouldn't say that he's enlightened, but a Buddha wouldn't say that he's not enlightened too. Because if you're enlightened and you say you're not enlightened, then you're lying. And a Buddha wouldn't do that. So by the Dalai Lama saying he's not enlightened, then you know that he's not enlightened. Because a person who's enlightened, they're not going to say they are enlightened, but they're not going to say they're not enlightened either. Mm -hmm. Oh, um... Uh, yeah. Uh, how many Buddhas have there been, or is there just one? Sure. So this is the only conflict that I see in the original Pali Canon, is there's some places in the Pali Canon where you can see that the Buddha is documented of having talked about previous Buddhas and that there were Buddhas before him. But then there's a place in the Pali Canon where you can see that the Buddha is documented as saying that he is the originator of the path, the discoverer of the path. This path was undeclared before him, meaning he's the only Buddha. So this is the only conflict that I've seen in the entire Pali Canon. And I suspect that he was the only Buddha that we know of today. Because in order to share the teachings of the Buddha or the path to enlightenment, there's a certain amount of intellectual understanding, certain conversational language that you need. And prior to 2,500 years ago, there was conversational language. But, you know, if you go back too far, you know, like 5,000, 10,000, 30,000 years ago, we didn't have the same intellectual ability to communicate the way that we do nowadays in, in a certain language. So in my opinion, it wouldn't be possible for a Buddha to have existed before Gautama Buddha because there wasn't that developed language in the human ability to be able to communicate the path to enlightenment. So I tend to think that when the Buddha is documented as having said, I am the originator, the discoverer, the declarer of the path to enlightenment undeclared before me, I tend to think that that's 
actually true. It doesn't really actually matter if there were Buddhas before him or after, even though it's a common question and I like to talk about it. It's an interesting question to discuss that it really doesn't matter because it's the teachings that are going to help you get to enlightenment because today your mind is discontent. You experience anger, sadness, frustration, and you need to learn those teachings. But it's an interesting question to talk about. And this is the one conflict that you will see if you study the Pali Canon. I haven't read the entire Pali Canon, but I have read enough of it that I can guide you to enlightenment because not everything that's in the Pali Canon is needed in order to get to enlightenment. But also everything you need to get to enlightenment is not in the Pali Canon as well. That's one of the reasons why you need teachers and guides. But if you read it, that's the one conflict that I've uncovered and seen in the Pali Canon. Um, can you just help me understand the first one better? I know I asked this question in the past, but uh, for example, thinking about the next Buddha, um, who will be in a position, I mean, we have social media, we have the internet, all of this, so, you know, obviously it will be someone who knows about uh, Gautama's teachings. So, in what way will that person arrive at enlightenment through their own efforts? So, will they discover a different way to reach enlightenment? Will they discover different kind of truths, or is it uh, will they read the Pali Canon, for example, and that's enough. If they read the Pali Canon, they will, uh, by their own efforts, reach enlightenment, but they will not kind of develop a new teaching or so. Yeah. So what Tatiana is asking about is this future Buddha that is described in the teachings of the Buddha. He describes a Buddha named Maitreya Buddha, which means... Uh, loving kindness, that this future Buddha that the Buddha described would have this overwhelming loving kindness for humanity and for the world, and that they would arise in the world and, and share the teachings that lead to enlightenment. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, he shared the natural laws of existence. He tapped into these natural laws, he saw them very clearly, and then he described them so people could get to enlightenment. And those natural laws that existed during his lifetime are the same exact natural laws that exist today. But people's memory of those teachings and the documented proof that we have of those teachings, that has all been affected by impermanence. And the Buddha knew that this was going to occur. So during his lifetime, he talks about how his teachings would arise in the world. The Buddha, Gautama Buddha, would arise, and then they would degrade over time. And then there would be this new Buddha, Maitreya Buddha, who would restore his teachings back into the world in such a way that all of humanity would be able to gradually get to enlightenment. Jesus Christ would have talked about coming back and you know, kind of sharing truth to, to create heaven on earth, where the Buddha talked about this new Buddha coming into the world and helping all of humanity get to enlightenment. So Maitreya Buddha would be teaching the exact same natural laws of existence, but they would use new cultural examples, right? Because like cars and mobile phones didn't exist during the lifetime of the Buddha. So where the Buddha might talk about, you know, being attached to your axe or your hoe, you know, the current Buddha might talk about being attached to your computer or your mobile phone or something like this, right? Uh, so it's the same exact natural laws, the same thing that leads to enlightenment during the lifetime of the Buddha are the same things that lead to enlightenment now. But Maitreya Buddha would need to now describe those in a way that people nowadays would be able to understand and then be able to produce that enlightened mental state. So the Pali Canon would be there as a base knowledge for Maitreya Buddha, but the Pali Canon as it sits 
prior to this book series, it's not in a pristine condition. There's certain language and certain words that are being used that I wouldn't suggest are the best words to use. So Maitreya Buddha would need to provide some clarity that now takes those particular teachings and helps students to understand what they are. Because over the course of 2,500 years, as people have translated them from Pali into English or Pali into Thai or these other languages, that the translations haven't been so accurate because the people that are translating are unenlightened. And an unenlightened being thinks very differently than an enlightened being. So when you read the Pali Canon, you can see some people that will translate the words of the Buddha and they will document the Buddha as having said things like, you stupid fool, you know, you don't know what you're talking about, blah, 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 stuff like this, right? A Buddha doesn't talk that way. An enlightened being doesn't talk that way. But this unenlightened being who is translating the words of a Buddha with their pollutions are putting that into the Pali Canon. So if you're reading that and you're thinking that, whoa, a Buddha talks this way, you might actually talk that way and think it's wise to talk that way. But an actual Buddha who's getting to enlightenment by themselves without the help of any teachers or any guides would be able to look at that translation and they'd be able to update it. And they might say, what you're thinking is unwise. What you should do is you should consider this, right? That's how a Buddha or an enlightened being is gonna talk. They're not gonna to refer to people as stupid or a, a fool or something like this. So Maitreya Buddha would update these translations in order to help people to understand what the Pali Canon is really communicating because they would be a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha they would understand how a Buddha speaks and they would be able to update this in a way that an unenlightened translator wouldn't be able to do. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. And you've been very patient. Thank you. <laughs> um, sorry, uh, going back to the feathers. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the high, high, high feathers, so the number six, number seven. So the desire of uh, form and a desire uh, for the formers. Mm -hmm. So the two, two stuff. So I wonder why uh, people should eliminate or get rid of to, uh, to desire. Maybe desire means so it's really um, might be obsessed some, by something. Mm -hmm. so, so for example, desire for form. So sometimes that, there is such a question. Let's say, so what? Uh, what do you, oh, what, what do you choose if you reborn? <laughs> I like to be a um, bird because so I could, I could feel free to, to fly, and uh, I don't think it's a, it's kind of bad <laughs> answer, and then so the number seven about number seven, so um, a lot of people might think so I don't want to go to the hell if there are some such a two places <laughs> after the after um, passing away. Mm -hmm. um, so having that kind of desire uh, is really harm to, to reach enlightenment. I, yeah, to, to know uh, profoundly or to know better, mm -hmm. uh, why? Why to choose uh, number six and seven is so harmful? Sure. If I have. Sure. So it's important to understand what the teachings of the Buddha, he's not teaching what's good and what's bad. That's not what he's teaching. Uh, he's not even necessarily teaching what's right and wrong. 
these aren't a bunch of rules that if everybody follows these rules, then we'll all live peacefully together. He's teaching you how to train your mind to get to the peace and how to get to the joy, being unaffected by what other people are doing in the world. So it's not that you learned a bunch of rules and if everybody follows these rules, the world will become peaceful. It's that he's teaching you about the world and how the world exists, how the world is. So when you understand that, then your mind can get to the peace and the joy. And one of the things that he's teaching you here with desire for form and desire for formless is that as long as your mind is craving existence and you want to be in this world, you will continue to be in this world because you have this longing, this yearning. There's this desire to be in this world. And now as you're getting closer and closer to death, you're going to be discontent. You're going to be frustrated. You're going to be irritated because you know that you're leaving this world and you're now uh, moving on. And now you're going to be experiencing painful feelings as you get close to death. So in order for you to get comfortable with death and be peaceful and joyful, understanding that death is part of this equation and getting to the point where you're no longer holding on to this world, you're going to need to eliminate that longing, yearning and the holding on, the clinging to wanting to be reborn into a form existence like human or animal or a formless existence like heaven, afflicted spirits or hell. Because as long as you have that longing, yearning, that desire to exist, then when you get close to death, you're going to be experiencing painful feelings. So that's how you get liberated from those discontent feelings is by training the mind to no longer hold on to this world, wanting to be in this world. But you also need to train the mind to not crave non-existence either. This would be somebody who's like interested in suicide. Whereas if you had that craving, you're not going to be peaceful there either. So it's only bringing the mind to the middle on this particular topic and all the others that you can then experience the peace and the joy. Um, thank you. So maybe a, a little bit difficult to understand um, <laughs> whole of this, but uh, yeah, what I felt is so desire is just a kind of a, so yeah. Attachment. <laughs> yeah, it's craving, so. desire, attachment. So let me use a, an example that's not this. Mm -hmm. Let's use an example like a new mobile phone. Let's say a uh -huh. new mobile phone comes out. Let's just say you have the iPhone 6, right? It's really old. It's beat up. It's got all kinds of problems. It's really slow. But now the iPhone 14 or 15 comes out. If you have a longing and yearning and you're really wanting that iPhone 14 or 15, you're going to feel discontent every time you use your iPhone 6. You're like, man, it's just not working. Why isn't it working? Oh, gosh, I wish I had that iPhone 14. What's going on? Ah, You really want that iPhone 14. That's the longing, the yearning, the craving. That's what's causing that discontentedness to arise. But if you can just be peaceful and you're like, you know what? The iPhone 6 is all that I can afford right now. Mm -hmm. It's doing what I need to do. Sure, I need to be a little bit more patient. Let me just take my time with it and just mm -hmm. be sure that I use it for what I can use it for. And mm -hmm. now without that desire for the iPhone 14, you can be content and you can be peaceful. But mm -hmm. as long as you have that desire in there, that longing, yearning, the wanting, the expecting, that's what's going to cause the mind to be discontent. And I'm going to teach you guys this tomorrow when we talk about the Four Noble Truths. All of this is just 
buildup to be able to help you understand what enlightenment is before tomorrow we really start focusing in on mm -hmm. the problem, the cause, the elimination, and the path forward. Mm -hmm. This is where you can have a real breakthrough. But this same craving, desire, attachment, the wants and expectations mm -hmm. about anything, if mm -hmm. your mind craves anything at all, if you're longing and yearning for anything, your mind's going to be discontent. So if you were indifferent and you could care less what happens to you in this life, you're not going to be peaceful there. But if you're craving and desiring and longing and chasing after things, you're not going to be peaceful there either. So it's only when you bring your mind to the middle where your mind can pursue something as a goal, as an objective or an interest that you can experience the peace and the joy. So back to this example of the iPhone 6, it's like, okay, my iPhone 6 isn't working. I need a new phone let me start saving a little bit of money so that I can ultimately buy this new phone because this is going to make things a bit more convenient for me. Mm -hmm. But while you're in the process of saving that money, you do it contently, you do it peacefully, you work towards that goal or that objective. And there you can maintain your joy. So the same thing here with desire for form and formless, you're not interested in craving to exist in the world. You're not interested to crave non-existence. Mm -hmm. You just learn to be content in the present moment that you are in existence. So now you learn to be in the present moment and having peacefulness and joy and contentedness in mm -hmm. the present moment. Okay. Thank you. I'm mm -hmm. looking forward to, to having the class tomorrow. <laughs> Thank mm -hmm. you. Yeah. Yeah. You'll learn the Four Noble Truths and what's actually leading to these disconsent feelings. You'll, I'll be able to walk you through and you'll be able to independently verify it. Just like those first five students of the Buddha that was able to independently verify it, they could tell that he was enlightened, he was a Buddha. You'll be able to do that independent verification here as I share it with you tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Any other questions on this? Okay. So there's sometimes more that I share here in this particular discussion, but I just let the discussion go wherever it needs to go. I'm not clinging or craving the discussion to be any particular thing, but I noticed that it's close to lunchtime. So what I'm going to do is take a break here for lunch, give you guys some time to rejuvenate your uh, bodies and your minds by resting, relaxing, by getting some food, talking with each other. It's just a little bit after 12. If we come back together at 1.30, which is essentially an hour and a half from now, then we'll be able to continue. And what I'm going to continue with is sharing with you guys Buddhist chanting and helping you guys to learn what Buddhist chanting is, why we do it, why it's helpful. And then I'm going to teach you how to do it slowly but surely. We'll do it together. And then ultimately, we're going to do a meditation session together this afternoon. So enjoy your lunch, and I'll see you guys at 1.30. Thank you guys for your questions. We'll see you guys in a little bit. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.